G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. Breck and Ellen, how are you, brother? Good, good. Good to be back on the podcast. I think this is three times now? This is the third, and I was thinking about it. The funny thing is... I feel like the first time you come on the pod, it was the first time we ever met. Yep. The second time we'd gotten to a point in our friendship in which we were catching up somewhat regularly. I think it was even post the marathon we did together. Yes. Where we'd catch up regularly, but I feel like we're at a point in our friendship in which we see each other every week yes. <laughs> and have deep work conversations. So I feel like our podcast features have evolved as our friendship has. Which makes sense, right? <laughs> right. Which, yeah, it would, ma- would mean that the connection gets better every time. And I guess that's a little bit of what we're here to do today. You meant to do that, didn't you? I didn't. That <laughs> was actually, I just stumbled into that one. I guess for the audience who maybe isn't inside that joke as we are. Essentially, the reason that we've come together for today's episode is all about connection. So we've developed a keynote speaking presentation, a co-presented Prezo, in which we really want to knock down the doors of connection. And, and to use your term, to knock down the doors of conversation, was it? Uh, kick kick the doors of conversation open is love, what I typed in. I love that. Um, I guess, essentially, we've been thinking a lot about the world in which we exist in now. And social media presents many challenges. The world we live in presents many challenges in which we're somewhat fooled to think that we're more connected than ever. But I think that we're more distracted than ever. And whilst... We follow each other online and see the day-to-day lives of people who, which we'd probably never bump into in the, the previous world. We're not actually that connected. You know, we, we have one in three people reporting that they're lonely. We have, I think it's the UK's appointed a minister for loneliness. The US has declared loneliness a pandemic. And so we exist in a society in which there seem to be some real barriers to connection that we want to break down. And you come up with a great idea to do that. We spoke about doing an episode on this sort of conversation. And you said, let's ask ourselves some questions that encourage connection. So what are we calling it? We are calling it eight questions to kickstart conversation, I reckon. Is what oh, you spitballed that on the spot because yeah. that wasn't what we spoke no, about before. It but wasn't, I like but it. That's combining everything that we've got here. Yeah, I, I like it. So I guess the way we're going to run this for the audience is I'm going to ask you a question, but I'll also answer that question myself. Um, We've designed these questions. We've both written more than four, just in case some of our answers tend to overlap on other questions we may have asked. Um, But you do the honors, brother. Kick us off. I'll kick us off, but I think it's also worth noting before we start, when when we talk about that connection piece, um, that it is something that relates to everybody. Uh, whether you you know you can look around at your own social circles and and find that connection within it, it's not saying that every single person is disconnected, but it's just giving everyone an opportunity to to look at the connections they do have, and the purpose of doing the questions the way that we are is to just to encourage maybe approaching these conversations we're having with the people around us 
a little bit differently. Like, I mean, you, you mentioned before about us now getting together, getting together weekly. Mm. And that's almost like a, a little highlight of my week where we catch up for a coffee before we do a bit of work. And yeah. we always just have like an hour where we'll have a bit of a chat that usually has something to do with whatever we're doing, we're speaking and work, but it seems to be a lot deeper than, than a lot of the other conversations that I can find myself having, particularly throughout the week when you're stuck in front of a computer. So the purpose of these questions, I think, should at least highlight what that next step looks like for, for a lot of people. And if you can take a few things away, then I think that would be amazing. So my first question um, is one that we've talked about before. And it's it's first of all to think about some of your, your favorite quotes. And I want you to actually state, like, what's one quote that you absolutely love? And would it hold the same meaning if it was said by Kim Kardashian? <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know we've touched on this before in which we've had a conversation around some of the quotes that have been meaningful to us and and questioning whether, you know, seeing Kim K's name beside that would be maybe shock horror for the audience. Um, it's funny, I don't know Kim Kardashian's story all that well. Um, I have caught a couple episodes of, of their family show with Sophie on the Lounge, though, I must admit. And I, I, I tend to think that it depends on the context of the quote. So let's let's pick one. So I would pick one of the quotes that I really love, and I'm just thinking about a Heath Ledger movie here, A Knight's Tale. There's a quote in that movie in which um, the young boy, being Heath Ledger in the movie, is sent by his father from um, quite a, a poverty-stricken life to go and be um, to go and be what what do they call it in the knights world? To go and be a squire, okay, a young squire for a knight. And as his dad sends him off, there's a, a very emotional goodbye in which the little boy says to his father, Dad, can a, can a boy change his stars? And I'm probably misquoting here, but he says something along the lines the father does. To reply to his son, he says, a man can change his stars if he believes so. And, and I often think about that because I think in my own life, in many ways, I've, I've changed my own stars. You know, the life that I was born into, living with cystic fibrosis, being told that, you know, that I would likely be better off with a terminal illness that I'd kill, that would kill me or I'd get over because CF would ruin my life. You know, I changed those stars by the way I showed up for myself, by, you know, having belief, perspective, you know, developing resilience and, and then going and doing the things that were necessary to have healthy and, and really prosperous life. And, and I often think about that quote and I think, well, how does that reflect to not just me, but to everyone, not just the little boy in the story, but to everyone? And I think from Kim Kardashian's perspective, pretty successful woman. She's yeah. done some incredible <laughs> things. So I think that these quotes hold meaning for all of us. And so I'd argue, even in Kim K's perspective, that in some ways she's changed the stars. <laughs> now, how, how do you think that plays out? And, and what, what's the quote that you'd use to reference that? So my, my take on it is... is it's pretty similar. Like I, I have been trying to improve the way that I find and use quotes, especially in my speaking, because I've always been terrible. And the main main reason I've been terrible at quotes is because I can never remember who said it. And then it, it occurred to me, I was like, does it really matter who said it? Because the quote should have enough meaning within the words and how whoever's listening to it can interpret those words. So for me, the way that I'd look at it is no matter who says it, the words are what has power. But sometimes when you can attach those words to the meaning of the story or the experience of the person that said it, I think that's when it can go a level deeper. Ooh, I agree with that. So my favorite quote is one that I know is a 
one that you're a big fan of and you probably know the one I'm going to say. Look, we all have two lives and our second begins when we realize we have only one life. Mm. That is something that I often share, almost every single keynote that I do, that quote. And I don't actually mention who said it because it's a Confucius quote, first of all, right? Um, I thought it was a um, Matthew McConaughey quote before I found out it was a a Confucius one just because he was the first person that I saw say it. Yeah. So I actually viewed it through the the lens of Matthew McConaughey first before Mm. finding out about Confucius. But for me, the meaning it holds is something within my own story and obviously having that near-death experience with the shark attack and how that has forced me to look at that question a little bit different and well, that that quote a little bit different. So I'm, I'm a big believer that I don't think it necessarily matters who says it. If Kim Kardashian said that, I'd be like, that's profound, Kim. Like, well done. Yeah. <laughs> but I, and, and I don't think that determines the power of the quote, but I think where it can elevate it is when you can intertwine that with the experience of the person, you can understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say this because I remember the, the first time that I really come across that quote and, and applied it to my own story was when I was writing my book. And I remember seeing the quote online on, on some platform and thinking, well, doesn't that hit home? And, and thinking about how that framed and sat within my life and my story. But I remember one of the first times I publicly shared that was on Cooper Chapman's podcast. Mm-hmm. And I remember he asked me a question that led me down that path. And when I watched the video back, I said the Dalai Lama. It's like... Oh, I know where my confusion come from because (laughs) it's two wise Asian men. Yes. (laughs) But I'm like, it still had the same punch. It didn't take the power away from the quote because I shared it with my own story. And so I guess that, you know, in some way, when you take a quote on or you hear a quote and then you ask yourself how, you know, that fits the mold of your life and your story and and how that feels coming from your context, it kind of becomes your quote. Mm. It kind of becomes your own meaning. And I think there's probably people that will hear either you or I quote those words and, and probably attribute it to us. And that doesn't mean that we've come up yeah. with it, but they position that with our story and what they've heard. But another example of it in the opposite way, like I, I wrote a journal article yesterday on my website quoting a, an obscure Japanese anime character. So not even a real person, but the quote was... Um, what was the quote? I knew I was going to forget it as soon as I mentioned it. <laughs> um, it was, I live freely under my banner, but I also expect, accept my all my responsibilities. And it was speaking in context of being creative. Hmm. And I was like, I found a lot of meaning out of that quote. I actually saw it in a Daft Punk documentary where they took a lot of inspiration for their own work through this anime character. Hmm. And it's Captain Harlock. Look, I can even quote the names now. Um, <laughs> And I, I, that's where I think it doesn't necessarily matter who it comes from, but it's more about the meaning that you assign to the quote where it holds the power. Yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful conclusion of that. Nice. Okay, you got the next question? Yeah, I'll go to the next question. This one is is one that I think is very relevant to, to you in particular, and I've written these with you in mind, not so much myself, but most of the listeners will know, and if they don't, I guess you touched on it just before that, a big part of the reason you're sitting behind the mic today and standing on stages and you have your documentary attacking life is because you're attacked by a bull shark and somewhat miraculously being one in 11.5 million people to do that and to have that experience survive to tell the story and you do a beautiful job of that. You know, you come very close to death. So I wonder what is your relationship with death? 
My my relationship with death is almost a, a slightly disconnected one. I think I've been among some of the closest that you can be to coming to death and then still live to talk about it. Um, it's not something that many people do get to experience. And I think there's something profound about that. It's, I always say that, that feeling of asking yourself the question, is this what it feels like to die, is, is both a balance of being probably the most profound moment of your life, but also it doesn't mean as much as what you think it might mean. Mm. Because, and, and this might be specific to my situation because immediately there was something within me saying, no, it doesn't feel right. So I didn't have the life flashing before my eyes or you know, weighing up what I'd done and what I'd, le- what, what I'd be leaving behind. So the profound part of that moment doesn't necessarily hit with me, but I think the significance of what going through that situation is to me is where it kind of holds true as far as my relationship with death. It's not something where I can look at the moment of death and say that is significant, but it's more in being able to look at the second chance of life that holds the, the value for me. So if anything, for me, death values life. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. It's a beautiful way of saying it. I have to ask, for context for listeners, viewers of the pod, um, we sat here this morning in, in my apartment running through some of what we're going to talk about in, in one of our presentations. And and you speak about and share in such a captivating way the, the moments of your shark attack and the way in which you experience that. And the thing that is always so remarkable for me to hear and and as some will know i've told your story on some occasions on stage when i think about the shark attack and the moments that unfolded the way in which because of that fight flight or freeze that you were able to so consciously take in what was happening around you i wonder in the moment or is it hindsight that gives you this benefit did you value what it meant to potentially die in that moment? Like, was there a moment in that attack in which you looked in that shark's eyes and thought, I am, I am dying right now? There, I don't think you can come to that sort of finality within the moment because there's no answers. You, you don't have the ability to have any sort of cognitive input into the situation because it's all instinct. So... I, I think it comes from hindsight, the ability to look at the situation as a whole and to kind of make up, you know, what your impressions of that situation are. But I, yeah, I don't think there's anything within the moment where you look down and you realise that something terrible is happening to you and is this going to be it? It's just this overall feeling of it being like, you know, something within that moment is just large. And this is the thing that I've tried time and time again to try and describe, like what that actually feels like. And I still can't really find the words for it, but it's just the feeling that you completely zoom out. And it's not that you're above the situation looking down on it, but I think it just causes you to, to pause um, and really nothing else in the world matters except for what's happening right in front of you. But I don't think those feelings of weighing up death and life and the significance of that and your relationship with all of that happens in that moment that's something that comes with hindsight that's that's something that has come with plenty of time and i'd say i'd only really come to terms with it in probably more recent times when i've actually been able to to talk about the experience a little bit more and to clarify my own thoughts and visions on it where i've been able to develop a a unique perspective on it that's true to me because i know everyone's everyone's probably point of view is going to be a little bit different on it too. Like I I look at, you know, something after being friends with you for a long time, 
something that never really occurred to me until more recently, like in the last probably 12 months, was that you have a significantly reduced life expectancy compared to a lot mm. of other people. And that for you must bring on a completely different and more complex version of what death might hold. Because I know everyone's death is inevitable, but I still feel like we have some sort of control over when that might happen. Whereas I feel like because your life expectancy is, is essentially lower, like how does that affect how you would answer the question and also how you would expect to answer my question as well? It's very interesting that you mentioned this because the life expectancy thing is something that has actually, the, my perspective on that has changed this year. So I guess for context, the first 18 years of my life, I had cystic fibrosis. At nine, I was diagnosed with liver disease. At 13, I was told I had diabetes because of my CF. And at 16, I started to get um, esophageal varices, which require routine surgical procedure every 12 to 18 months. So I had all of these things on my medical record that would constitute a conversation around reduced life expectancy. But I, I wasn't being challenged particularly in a physical nature by any of those things. Whilst I took 50 tablets a day and like underwent a routine to keep on top of my CF day by day, I was doing things and very aware of the fact that all of these were, were problems, and problems and challenges that life would be a little easier without. But I was really healthy and I had no proof to show that my life would be any different to anyone else, like my life expectancy. But from the age of 18, when I started really having some challenges and you know encountered my first few lung bleeds, which is where I really you know, frame what you said before that quote, you know, every man lives two lives, the second begins when they realize they have just one. That's when that started to have a lot of meaning for me as a young man. And, and I started to really value what this life was, that it was this finite thing, this thing that I wouldn't get a second chance at. But as I've gone on over the last couple of years, what I've begun to understand is that this conversation of life expectancy is actually a little bit of a myth. Now, let me sort of air this out a little bit and show you what I mean. So they can say that for someone with cystic fibrosis in Australia, the life expectancy is somewhere between 38 and 41 years of age. But I ask you, Brett, what's your life expectancy? Well, you can only really go by stats. What is it, like sort yeah. of late 70s is average Late life 70s, expectancy? early yeah. 80s. Yeah. But that doesn't account for the person who gets hit by a bus mm. tomorrow who, just like you, had the expectancy of 80 years on earth, but something challenged them. The same way that nobody, unless they're really trying to, like by smoking a couple of packets of cigarettes a day and doing some some pretty um, dangerous things for their health. Cigarettes and whiskey, the yeah. country voice. <laughs> 100%. Like nobody would really expect to get cancer or expect to be faced with a real health challenge or would expect to encounter mental health and think that maybe at some point in time they'd consider taking their life. So none of these things are accounted into life expectancy in our futures. And so I think, well, life expectancy is actually a bit of a myth because nobody's guaranteed anything. You know, and life expectancy is based on statistics and averages, not based on someone being given a ticket that says, hey, here's your next 80 years, use them wisely. And so what I've realized is that none of us know, know how long we're going to be here for. And where death, for me, that conversation or that question, what's my relationship with death? It really started to be something I considered 
only at the start of this year, like how death made me feel about life. So you would know because we spoke about it and, and found it quite humorous that at the start of the year, I, I would say um, not particularly a sought out opportunity, but I kind of become the death guy for a couple of months. <laughs> so, you know, for people wondering what I mean by that, I filmed an episode of the podcast, which was one of the three mates series with good mates of mine, Joey and Foons. And the exercise for that podcast was to write our own eulogies. Now, the idea of that exercise was not because any of us are expecting our, our imminent death, but rather because I think the idea of considering your mortality encourages you to ask the questions that would then allow you to get the most out of your life, the opportunity that you do have to live, and the understanding that you're not here forever. And so we released that episode, and particularly a clip of me being the emotional cat that I am, reading that eulogy and just absolutely wallowing and crying my eyes out for three and a half minutes. Um, unsuspectingly blew up online. So, you know, 600-odd thousand people see this clip online and all of a sudden I'm doing an interview with um, a mate of ours, Justin Hunsdale, who um, we're with today at ABC. And then, you know, SBS is calling me and wants me to do a, an Insight TV episode on death. And, you know, I'm getting all these podcast interviews about it and speaking about it and all these platforms and it seemed like for two months straight, all I spoke about was death when I went on different um, media platforms. And it made me really think about it. And one of the people who encouraged me to do that eulogy episode, not personally, but just from me observing their story, was a guy by the name of BJ Miller. So BJ Miller was on an episode of Chris Hemsworth's Disney series show, which is called Limitless, in which they basically went on a mission to figure out, you know, how to increase longevity and how Chris could get the most out of his life. In the last episode of, I think, what was a six-episode series, they spoke about death and preparation for death and understanding of death. And I thought, oh, this is a topic we really don't talk about. It's quite taboo. But it's very interesting to think about the impact that death can have on us, not in our last moments, but early on in our life and understanding that it's, it's coming, it's imminent. But what are we going to do about the life that we have? And I found real inspiration in BJ's story. So he's a doctor, he's a medical doctor, and he had quite a particularly um, grueling accident where he was electrocuted by power lines. I believe he lost one of his legs, um, maybe even both of his legs, and um, one of his arms. And so, you know, quite a profound accident and incident in which he was very lucky to survive. And he's gone on to, to do some incredible things. And, you know, I consumed all of his content. One of the quotes that that really inspired me to think about death in quite a positive way is um, a quote that I heard on his TEDx talk where he said, let it be death that takes us, not lack of imagination. And it made me think about what a privilege it is to actually get to the end of our life in which it is old age or, or one of these things that takes us very late in our journey and how that should make us think about the beautiful opportunity that we have to live every day and what we want to do with that time. And it's really a conversation of quality over quantity. And so I would say that on one hand, I am I'm terrified of death because I love life. You know, I love life so much. I love the people that I have in my life. I love what I do every day. You know, and I want, I want to enjoy that for as long as I can. But on the other hand, man, I'm, I'm even more terrified of getting to the end and realizing that I died many, many years ago. Mm. I think that makes me really think about, you know, what death can teach us. 
Well, on, on that note too, to extend what that question actually means for you, say you get to 45 years old and your health is still good, like you're living a relatively normal life as a lot of other people would do at that age. Do you then, once you get past that life expectancy point, how do you view it? Do you view it as bonus years? Do you view it as if, if you're not putting a life expectancy on yourself, is it just normal or like does that change the way that you would view it once you exceed that yeah it's a great question Brett I want to I almost think that if I go back to that moment at 18 in which I had my first lung bleed and you know sat in the car on the way to the hospital terrified as, as an 18 year old man like a young boy so much life left to live and I, I remember looking at my dad and thinking fuck is he gonna see me die in the car like is this it and just thinking about all the things that I hadn't done, all the people that I missed, and then that quote that we've referenced a couple of times, I almost think that it was all a bonus from then. Mm. You know, I think the first moment in which you realise that, you know, this is life, this is what we have, like it's finite and it can end so quickly. I think that from there is just I've considered everything a bonus. And it's maybe why, in some regards, I have such urgency in everything that I do. It's why sometimes it's really hard for me um, to be even just a little bit present and not like think too much about where I want to be or where I'm going. And, and maybe I should have learned to be more present. Mm. And that's something I'm trying to do in my life now. But I think I consider it to be you know, such a blessing that I am where I am. I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think it's why I get so emotional about life. And, you know, I, I wonder like for you, how does that make you feel? Well, I, I hadn't really framed it like that until, I guess until you, you mentioned the fact that life expectancy is, is a myth, <laughs> if, we're, if we're calling it a myth, and if anything can happen at any moment. Like I, I had one of my questions here, which we've kind of answered, like why do we consistently need reminders that life is short? I've been through something that for anyone to go through that and survive it, you realize how quickly things can change, how short life is how fragile everything is. And I don't think you realize the significance of that until you go through it, but you can still forget. You can still get consumed with the monotony of the day to day. You can still get consumed with all the other stuff that everybody's consumed with. And you can often forget what that lesson meant. And capturing that feeling again is not something you want to do by experience, but you want to have those other reminders. And I think that can be a challenge for a lot of people to actually figure out what that is for them. I, I think this is interesting. Let me yeah. cut in here for a minute on something you just said. I think I may have shared this with you recently, but I watched a clip. Um, Eric Weinstein was on a podcast. I think it may have been may have been on Chris Williamson's pod or, or another one of the pods that you and I both listened to. And he spoke about, actually, no, he was on, I think it's called Trigonometry. Um, it's, it's quite an interesting podcast by two very intelligent human <laughs> beings. And he was speaking about how the average person experiences many deaths in their lifetime. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, I'm interested in this. Let's see what he has to say. And he went on the journey of explaining that at one point in his life, he went on this huge walk. He walked some incredible trail over in some incredible place across the other side of the earth to where he'd never experienced before. And he remembers how incredible that experience was. And he remembers saying that in like in a year's time, in two years time, I'm gonna come back and do this again. 
but he never got back there mm. because all of a sudden he had a bodgy ankle and then he was too busy and then life consumed him and his time and all of a sudden that part of him that adventurer that was gonna travel to the other side of the globe and go on these great expeditions had died like that was one part of him and he's like we all suffer these deaths in our lives we all experience them it's interesting to think about the things that we're doing the things that mean something to us and how you really don't know it's the last time you're experiencing something until you never experience it again mm. i think that's probably a good way of framing it too because the the fact that we are going to go through these different phases in life just because you don't get back to do that that profound walk again doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything to you like everyone's circumstances can change like everyone he might have something that he's working on in life that might just mean more to him now mm-hmm. and i think it just goes to to show the importance of actually reflecting on what those experiences do mean from you and if, for you and if you can take what you want away from them like it, that's you're really in in control of how you want to perceive these experiences in life and if it is doing something that means a lot to you like walking a trail or if it's a near-death experience like you have the ability to take what you want from that i think everyone does no matter what the experience is good good or bad so the the notion of essentially like dying many deaths also means that you get to live many lives as well oh, i like that and that's a lot of experiences that if i mean you can you can reframe almost anything right <laughs> it's just another version of the hero's journey um where you can you can surely look at the other side of the coin and say well whilst that isn't something that you know i'm doing anymore or, or I, I might grieve the loss of that maybe there's something else that comes along that can give you that that same feeling and maybe that that pushes aside the idea of like those reminders of life every single day that you know life is short and i think for me like if i was to try and give someone an explanation of how i try and come back to that for me it's just reflection i i really get motivated when i do reflect when i look backwards it's the best thing i can do to help me look forwards so the ability to, and I do it a, a lot. I probably do it more than, than most. I'll write down, like I'll look back at yesterday every single morning. Like I'll write down the things I'm grateful for with the sole purpose of just saying, okay, what meant a lot to me yesterday? I'll do it at the end of every week. Every quarter I do a big evaluation. And the best thing about doing those is it allows me to look back on the things that meant a lot to me and then to ask either how I can keep doing those in the future or if it's something that's not going to be possible in the future, what else can I do that can give me that same sort of feeling? Mm. So the ability, ability to look back for me is really a driver of helping me look forward. Um, and I think on the topic of death, so, so, we don't get, so you don't get you know, known as the death guy for the next two months. I'm not <laughs> sure if you, you want that or not. Um, I think it'll be my next question for you is one that is pretty reflective. Um, to help you go through that same process something i was introduced to by sam tolhurst who i made attacking life with good friend of mine um someone that you know pretty well as well he introduced me and everybody that i've worked with on any sort of film project to this concept of sweet sour banana love it explain so the idea of it is we would do it at the at the end of every single day we would all get together and we would say, what's your sweet, sour banana of the day? So the sweet is your best part of the day. The sour is the worst part of the day. And the banana is the funniest part of the day. Banana is often the hardest one to actually think of something to do. And you can do this over any sort of period. Like I would do it 
I mean, we did it at the end of our Hawaii trip when we were filming for Attacking Life. I actually did one at the end of last year, looking back on the entire year. I like that. And tried to pick out some of my best moments. So uh, what sort of time frame do you want? Do you want week, month, year? I'm, go- I'm going to challenge you to just throw something at me. All right. Let's put me on the spot. Let's do over the past month. So it's recent enough where you can have some specific examples. But what is your sweet, sour and banana of the last month? It's oh, a great question. And I think... May I point out, maybe for the people who are listening and are thinking deeply about how do I create greater connection with my friends or family who, who maybe seem to be a little bit apprehensive to open up and be vulnerable. This is perfect. Really creative way and really fun way of doing it. So I think let's go to my suite first. Let's think of a, a really beautiful moment. And I think for me it's, you know, at the moment we've been talking about it quite a lot that in a a challenging position from a career perspective where trying to move the needle on a couple of things that I've started from the ground up. And so it doesn't always feel like there's the most stable foundation to build from when you don't know where the next job's coming from or the next opportunity. And you feel as though you have to create a lot of that yourself. And just framing here, this is not my suite, but the suite is, you know, the other day I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the support which I have in my life. And going through a particularly challenging period, what I've been able to lean on is the support I have at home and and my partner, Soph. And I remember thinking about, I just experienced this last week. I was at home and we were having a hug. And I remember I'd come home from something, I went and gave her a big hug and a kiss. And I was looking at her and I, I thought back to last year. And I remember particularly leading into the start of last year, I remember thinking, oh, far out trying to move the needle from a career perspective there's some insecurities that I'm really trying to overcome so I can show up for myself in a relationship and you know and create a connection with somebody that you know I can spend my life with and create a family with and I felt like I was so far from that happening you know my health was starting to get into a good position but still experiencing some challenges and I thought far out I I I need to move the needle so far in so many areas of my life And that can feel a little bit overwhelming when you're looking at all the things that are ahead of you and not feeling as though you've got a grasp on all of them. And just reflecting in that moment as I was giving her a hug last week and looking at her, I thought, far out. If you told me at this point a year ago that you would have the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with in front of you, embracing you through some of the challenges that you're facing now, how sweet does that feel? Mm. And so that that for me was really nice to feel as though I'd made progress in one area of my life, which I'd argue is the most important area. Like I I would sacrifice every one of those other things to have somebody that I'm truly connected with and can spend my life with, you know, one of the most simple pleasures. And so that would definitely be my sweet, my sour. What's my sour? Well, maybe this is a little shallow one, but, um, listeners of the pod will maybe have some more idea as to you know how my fate was sealed you know after the fact because we're a couple days away from my fifth marathon (laughs) and you know you and I have both been talking a lot about running lately and man I find that it's funny because I go into I've gone into every one of my marathons um now now five not in good health (laughs) and I find it really challenging to like (laughs) To link the marathon date or the race date to a particularly good stretch of preparation or health. Mm. And so I, I remember thinking this year, oh, this is my year because, you know, 2020, my first one, bleeding lungs, the same thing 2021. 2022, I was like, 
Um, actually, 2022... That was Melbourne, wasn't it? Was. Yeah, it's 2023 yeah. now. 2022 <laughs> was Melbourne. And I thought, oh, I'm on here. My lungs feel great. Now I've got Achilles tendonitis um, just in the lead up to it. But it ended up being quite a good run. And then at the end of 2022, I did my ultra. And um, I got crook in the lead up and had to go on antibiotics. So my guts were just shot for the whole run. And this year I thought, oh, I am on. And then I got an infection in my sweat glands and had to have my arm cut open. And so I've been <laughs> on antibiotics and like infection in your body, you never feel great. And then I've got something going on with my foot that feels kind of like a stress fracture that I'm trying not to think about. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's always like the sour is a little bit of, I just love to run one of these things in great prep, but it is, it is a very small sour, I mm. must admit, in the, scheme of, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of life. Um, so it's something I can definitely laugh about. Talking about laughing about things, I guess my banana. What would my banana be at the moment? I'm trying to think of something quite, quite humorous that's happened. I feel like on some level there's always something um, very humorous happening. Actually, I'll share one with you. So um, actually mutual connection of ours is a, a guy named Andrew Hamilton. Yep. And so I recently had Andrew Hamilton. For mm -hmm. those who don't know him, you may have seen, I, I dropped a recent podcast with him. It will be out by the time people hear this. And in that podcast, you know, we spoke about his journey. So he was um, quite a successful PR guy who somehow found himself selling mushrooms and a bunch of other drugs in large quantities, spent some time in prison for that, and has come out of prison and, and credit to him, turned his life around, is doing some incredible things, predominantly in the comedy space, stand-up comedy. And he's a hilarious guy, so I was like, I've got to have him on the pod. Had him on and we started having a bit of a chat and it was one particular moment in which we were talking about... <clears throat> call it the moral compass of a human being and how, you know, he believes that even, even in this day and age with hindsight, looking back on his experience, that selling mushrooms isn't such a great crime. There's other things that he started to sell that he admits was wrong, but he talks about mushrooms and how he actually thinks eventually they're going to be completely legal in Australia. They're being somewhat used medicinally at the moment. And he said, I think we're going to get to a point where, you know, a lot of the jokes in prison were like, man, selling mushrooms, you're kidding. When you get out, the cops will probably just give them back to you. <laughs> so, you know, quite, quite a lighthearted look at that. And I said to him, I find it interesting that you feel as though that was something in which your moral compass still stays intact, but you push the law. Like, you know it's wrong by the definition of the law. And when you start to push the boundaries, do you at some point get stuck in the vortex, which is wrongdoing, which eventually then you realise that, oh shit, I'm so far down the road that I've actually started to encroach on what's right or wrong based on my moral compass. And we spoke about that topic and I said to him, just in a throwaway comment, I can't speak to what it feels like to take drugs because I've never taken drugs, to which he replies, loser, <laughs> nerd. <laughs> and I, I was so surprised that I lost it and proper like, when I get in like one of those heaving, dry, yeah. rich laugh states, it's so hard for me to recover. And I spent the next 10 minutes where I couldn't look him dead in the eye because it was just so funny. Um, so that would probably be my banana. And I guess that's the beauty of being in, in this space with a pod is um, you have so many experiences with so many different people that you may have, like we do, a, a real connection and, and depth of friendship or in that case, it may be someone you're seeing face-to-face -face for the first time. 
Um, so that would be my sweet sour banana. I love that. So the, the beauty of the sweet sour banana, as I said, it, it does give you a chance to look back. Mm. Um, it does give you a chance to reflect. Whether you like write that stuff down and, and take note of it is, is neither here nor there. But the purpose of bringing people closer together is amazing. And that's something I've experienced as I've traveled with Sam. And at the end of every day, like inevitably you'd be like, all right, everyone gather around, sweet sour banana, banana time. And um, like we, we would do it everywhere. There's, there's one photo of us when we were in Kansas at the start of the year shooting a pilot for this TV show that we we're working on. And we, the game that we were over there to shoot, like Kansas versus Texas, Allen Fieldhouse, like it's just been this packed, raucous environment for the last couple of hours. Everyone leaves, Kansas gets the win, everyone's stoked. And there's Sam, myself, Max, who's one of the young kids who came over with us, Zach, who is the guy whose idea it was for the show in the first place. And then this random photographer that we'd met, whose name was John. We, we, all, we all took a knee in the middle of the court and ran through our sweet sour banana, just like in the middle of the court, nowhere. Like it was just such a random experience, but it's funny because it's just become a part of what we do. And I it does, that. it's just a good way of bringing everyone together. It does encourage deeper connection without, like you don't necessarily have to ask someone about death. To, to develop that deeper connection. It is a very profound way to converse and something you get to know a lot about a person. But just asking those simple questions, it's more than just like, how was your day? Like you, you can give some specifics and then just getting them to actually think about some of those, those parts. Well, I think it encourages reflection. Mm. And I often think that because we're so distracted, we often don't reflect about the lives that we're living. And sometimes in reflection, you think, fuck, life's pretty good. Yeah. You know, there's some incredible things happening in my life. And, and even, you know, using that banana as a reference to maybe laugh and, and show some perspective for the challenges or, or you know, more particularly um, just outrageous things that are happening in your life. I'll give it to you then. I'll hit the ball back over the fence to you. You know, what's your sweet sour banana for the month? Uh, sweet. Sweet. I'll reference a, an event that I spoke at last week. Uh, it was just a community event down in uh, down in Nara, and it was a mix of sort of older people, people who were part of um, like Illawarra Shoalhaven Health, and then a couple of families. Mm. And there was this family that was sitting in front of me, and um, there was I kind of got to the end, and you can never really tell how some kids are going to take things. Like it's a long time for them to sit still, and despite the fact that I know kids will sit still when I'm speaking, like I, I'm still amazed when they make it to the end of it. And it got to the end as I was finishing up and there was a kid sitting in the front row and he'd written out this little sign that said, we love you. I like that. How good's that? And I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. And came up, had a chat afterwards and um, he's had his own um, adversities uh, that he, he's kind of working through at the moment and it caused him to like lose a bit of confidence in some of the things that he's doing. And his mum said to me afterwards, she was like, he needed that. That was, that's exactly what he needed right now. And I think the ability to reflect on what an amazing moment that is where, again, like my mission, whatever I do, no matter what it is, if I can help one person, it's all worth it. And getting someone like that where you're like, wow, that's that's someone you know you've made an impact on, I think is that's always going to be a sweet for me. And that's that's one that I can easily, easily point to and say that that was it. Yeah, that's so special. I'm always mm. taken back by how, you know, you think about us at that age. My heroes mm. were just the footy players on TV yeah. or my parents you think about i think kids are exposed to so much content these days they're actually more open to 
hearing stories than maybe our generation was. Mm. They've got more distractions than we did, that's for sure. Mm. But oh, the ones that that actually like use that technology for good, yeah, oh, they're just so open to receiving incredible messaging. Definitely. What would your sour be? Sour. Uh, my sour would probably be. Uh, it's similar to yours, marathon-based, right? Um, so the reason I'm doing Sydney Marathon on Sunday, um, which, again, I'll, we'll know the outcome of that by the time <laughs> this comes out. Um, and the reason I signed up to do it was to run alongside my wife, Noemi. And she's had a really, really rough time with her training, like just injury after injury after injury, and got to the point where she just didn't have the kilometers and then later found out that she basically needed to stop running for a little while to let her foot heal otherwise it will turn into a stress fracture and just watching her kind of go through that process of like i was part of me was really proud of her for pushing through the pain for such a long time because Mm. this was her dream and her goal to be able to do it but then the other half is like okay you need to listen and know when to stop and know that it's okay because that's a really difficult thing. Like I, I'm okay with the notion of, of failing and saying like, here's this massive goal I wanted to achieve. If I can't get it, I can, I can do it again. But for her, because she'd put so much time and effort into wanting to do this, just the, the emotions around saying, no, it's not going to happen this time is, is a lot. For sure. So it, I, I've found difficulty in finding meaning in doing the marathon for myself because that's not what I signed up to do it for. I signed up to do it for for her, yeah. so I've got I've found a couple other friends who I'm just going to run with them throughout it, and like I could have easily said, okay, if I'm not running with her, let's try and knock out a PB, but that's not what it's about for me. For sure. So that'd be my sour, not being able to do that, but and probably means that I'll have to do another marathon block with it <laughs> to do that again. Because <laughs> I was saying halfway through the training, I was like, I can't wait for this to be over because I'd much rather do trail running than road running. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that'd be my sour. And then banana would probably, I don't know if this is a sweet or a banana, but it's probably, probably both. Um, Bananas so, can be sweet. Yeah, they, they can. So as a result of Noemi not being able to do the marathon, she was like, I need to have something to fill my time. Came home one day, she's like, I bought a piano. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. Like I knew she wanted one, but she was just like, that was the trigger to make her purchase yeah. the piano. Two days later, we have this piano show up and I'm putting, putting the thing together for her. But it's just so funny how it was just, that was the trigger for her to be like, piano yeah. time. <laughs> All right. You know what? I've thought about this a lot lately because I've started listening to a lot of country music and there's actually a guy who people would know him from American Idol. I can't remember his last name, but his first name is um, Alejandro mm-hmm. and he's an incredible acoustic guitar player and just got this wild voice. It's probably one of the most impressive um, singing auditions I've ever seen on one of these shows. And just watching him play guitar like reignited the old passion that I used to have for music and I used to play guitar like over 10 years ago now. Mm. And we were, it's funny, we we're talk, telling some stories about that today. But I think, oh, it's such a skill that I think gets you back to a state of presence because you can read a book and still kind of pick up your phone or you you can do a bunch of things and still be distracted. It's one of those things that requires full attention. Mm. I think that's a, it's a great, it's a great healthy distraction to have. Yeah. 
You haven't got one yet? No, I don't have one. <laughs> Just looking around. <laughs> looking around. The old um, token guitar that sits in the corner of everyone's apartment that they've never used. I've got one of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, like, I used to have one. I sold it last year. I sold it. I'll ask you a question now. Okay. Um, throw it back over the fence. I think we're up to question four. We are up to question four. Okay, this is one that I think would be really interesting. So is there a piece of art and by art, I mean a piece of written or spoken word. It could be a film. It could be a piece of music, a book in which you've read that has influenced or inspired new direction in your life. I think there's there's multiple, and I'll I'll try and think of a specific example as I'm I'm talking through why. But I I, I place a, a bit of emphasis on trying to actively learn as much as I can, um, whether that be through uh, reading or listening to podcasts or whatever it might be, um, even through yeah documentaries or film, a- anything like that. And a big part of that is I, I'm, I really try to be open with the perspectives that I can take on. And I know like it would be rude of me not to because that's what I do for a living is I provide sure. perspectives that people can either choose to take or not. Uh, so I, I really like to keep an open mind with that because it's, I mean, it's one of my pillars. I want to always learn. Um, so I'll, I'll, there's a number of different ones that I could, could actually reference and say like that, that is quite significant. Um, but I'll probably just stick with, with one for the moment. And I'm trying to think what's probably going to be the best one to, to actually go with. Maybe a recent one that is, it's going to, tie together something we've already spoken about today but it, it sits I guess it speaks to why I do try and keep an open mind so over the weekend it'd been a, a long time since I'd watched any documentaries just because I was doing a lot of other stuff and kind of I always go through phases where I watch a bunch of stuff and then I, I probably won't so I was like okay I've got some time on Saturday I'll I'll find something to watch and I came across the Daft Punk documentary that came out in like 2015 and I was a big fan of Daft Punk back when I was sort of going through high school and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know they had a documentary that came out. And I was like, oh, I'll see what it's about. I got to watch the whole thing. And I think it, part of it was just the nostalgic experience of going through that, listening to all the music that they produced over the years. And like, I've always been a really, really big fan of their final album, which was so different to what they produced beforehand. And it was... You find out later on when you do find out this is their final album that it's something that was a true representation of what they wanted their music to portray, which they really wanted to use all of the inspiration of the music that they loved in the 70s to come through in more of a modern day sort of term. And I think the thing that stuck out to me through watching that documentary was just the pure attention to detail they put into their work. Like mm. there's, there's one story that they share about their performance at Coachella in 2006. So they, Coachella had reached out to them for like consecutive years saying, come play at Coachella, come play at Coachella. And they're like, no, no, no. And then the offers got up to like quarter of a million dollars and they're like, no, no. And then the, there was, they released Human After All in 2006, I think, or 2005. And it didn't do as well as what I think they were hoping. And they're like, okay, we need to do something to, to show we're relevant. Coachella offer came around, like $300,000. And they're like, okay, we'll do Coachella this year but we're going to need the payment up front. And usually the payment's only like 10% up front and then they'll, they'll pay the rest like when you finish the gig. And they're like, no, we're going to need the payment up front. <laughs> and they're like, but why? And they're like, oh, we got to build our set 
And they're like, okay, like a $300,000 set is an expensive set. And they're like, yeah, we just need it. So they ended up negotiating. They're like, we won't play if you don't give us money, basically. So they gave them the money. And just the two guys, so Toma and Guy Manuel, they, they worked on this set and they were they wanted it to be do- so different to anything that anyone had seen where they got all these like LEDs and all, all these panels showing videos and all these lights. And it's this big, I'm not sure if you've seen it, they play on top of this big pyramid. No, I haven't. And it's... It's just crazy how much attention to detail they put into it. So they wanted to produce something that no one had seen before and it was going to cost a lot of money. Not even their manager knew what they were producing. The manager got the money to come in, gave it to them and then was like, let's see how it goes. And that performance ended up being their iconic 2007 Alive album and was pretty much like the most iconic Coachella performance ever. But just knowing the level of detail they put into every single part of their music and I I suppose it goes to show... If you care about something enough, you will go to those lengths to make it as perfect as it can be. Mm. It's really easy to pull up short and call it good enough. But when you see these guys say that it is like we won't stop at good enough, we want to go to perfect, makes it even better. And there's there's another part of the film where they were they're interviewing uh, this guy, um, Giorgio Moroder, who was like a really big in the seventies about um, who kind of developed dance music. Mm. and they said we want to collaborate with you on a song but we don't want you to produce any music we just want you to come in the studio and tell us about your story and he comes in the studio and there's three microphones there and he's like what's up with the three microphones and the producer's there so the the guys the robots aren't even in there and he goes well this microphone's from the 60s so like you know when you were growing up this one's from 75 so when you were making your music and this is a microphone from today and the guy's like but why he said well because when that when you're walking through your story, you want to use the audio from the older microphone when you're talking about the past. Then when you're making music, the 75 microphone, and then the future stuff, like with all today's stuff, we'll use today's microphone. He's like, but you won't be able to notice the difference. And the producer's like, yeah, I know, but they will. So just that level of detail. Like if you could finish a career knowing that you have like no stone left unturned. And I think it's really brought a, a really beautiful perspective with how I want to approach a lot of things in my own life. Like there's a lot of, and it's hard when you're working on a lot of things and you want to make sure stuff gets done, but just going to that next level, just taking an extra day or an extra week to work on something can, can play, pay off massively, not necessarily in how people are going to perceive it, but just in how you're going to perceive the work that you've been able to do. You know, I think we spoke about this earlier this morning. We spoke about the fact that, you know, I often think about how I envy the musicians and actors who have the ability to dive into a project, give that everything they've got, like make it, as you said, as perfect as possible, as, as true as a, of a representation of the work that they want people to experience, to see, to hear, to feel, and then step out and re-engage in creativity so that the next project is meaningful. And I think about that and I think in a society in which we value abundance that's kind of a lost art i've heard matt damon talking about the fact that movies are made so differently now because they don't have the budget for these big movies that we used to watch because everything's about how quickly can you get it to netflix Mm. and how many 90 minute movies can you make it's a question that we've you know uh, spoken about in the past in which we heard on chris williamson's pod you know what's the what's the story or the you know who's the human being that we need to make a movie about that would be more meaningful than the next Fast and Furious. Yeah. 
And that's not taking away from the Fast and Furious franchise for its ability to entertain people somewhat. And I even think about it in a podcast setting. You know, we talk about the fact that this is like this consistent every week thing in which, you know, you have to then somewhat, in some cases, be aware of how often you're creating, how much abundance there is so that it supports the week-to-week need to put this out. Mm. So I often think about that and think, far out have we... Have we gone down the path too much of, oh, we need another episode or we need another album? I think sometimes the best stuff comes from a period of rest. Mm. Yeah, I like that. that and, and that resonates with, I think it's, it's really applicable to, to what you're doing with, with podcasting, like I said, with creative pursuits. But I think you can apply it to almost anything, can't you? Oh, for sure, for so, sure. So how would you answer the same question? Yeah, I was just thinking about this deeply then as, as you were talking and thinking about how it's impacted me in my life. And, you know, funnily enough, I didn't think too much about the depth of the questions and how I'd answer them. I, I thought really about how you would answer them because um, that's what I was really interested in hearing. And I, I guess for me, probably the standout thing in terms of a piece of art having real impact on me, and talk about huge impact, is a book, The Alchemist. Mm. So maybe I've told this story a long time ago, but... The Alchemist is is a book that I consistently, for a long time, heard a lot of really influential people talk about it being one of their favourite books. And I remember hearing Kobe Bryant say that The Alchemist was his favourite book. And I remember just thinking, far out, I just keep hearing people talk about this book. And at the time, I wasn't a reader at all. In fact, in many regards, I'm still not much of a reader, I'm much more of a listener. But I'm trying to change that. And... I'm a listener in recovery and you're trying to read more. (laughs) And I found myself just like, I need to think about where I can get this book. And I remember mentioning it to my mum. And my mum said, I've got a copy of that book. Mm. And it just so happened that um, the next week I found myself in hospital after one of my little health crises in, I think it was 2019. And I had two weeks in hospital. And two weeks in hospital means you have a lot of spare time. And my mum brought me that book. And believe it or not, maybe you will believe it, I didn't read it. It just sat in my bag the whole time. Oh, I thought that was going to have a different, no, it <laughs> a didn't. different branch. But then six months later, that book had still sat on my shelf at home. And I was in a particularly rough patch with my work in which I felt really disconnected from my work, from who I am as a human being. I was in real estate at the time. And I was just going through like a really challenging point in my life in which I just lacked sense of fulfillment or meaning and and really was just struggling to get out of bed in the morning and put a smile on my face and I remember just going something needs to change I just need to change something about my routine and so I had a conversation with my bosses at work and I said I'm gonna start working outside the office a little bit more I'm gonna start going to a cafe sitting down putting myself in a new environment and as part of that I decided to go to a cafe every morning and sit down have a coffee and read for 30 minutes before I started any work. So I'd usually get to the cafe at seven in the morning, I'd grab a coffee and I started reading this book. And as I started reading this book, I found myself hooked. I found it very easy to read. And the idea of The Alchemist is it's the story of a shepherd boy who sells his sheep to go on an adventure, to go on a quest to find the hidden treasure at the pyramids. And so he goes from Spain, his homeland, across to Africa and goes in search of this treasure. Now, one of the main quotes in that book is that a person's only real obligation is to go in search of their personal legend, which can be, I guess, in in our terms, defined as purpose. Mm. 
And I remember thinking about that and sitting there and reading that book and thinking, how much, how much of my life is just a routine that I'm stuck in? How much of this is almost like a simulation in which every day I, I get up and go about the same type of business in the same type of way and feel a little bit meaningless and feel a lack of fulfillment because I'm here just to make some money and show up. Like a, a lot of it is just participation. It's existing, you know, and ceasing to live. And I'm, I really thought about that and I got to the end of that book and it had had such an impact on me the day that I read the last page of that book, I walked into work and quit. Mm. And, you know, I think deeply about why I did that. And I think there was this, this real understanding after reading what is just a story. But the impact it had on me was the reminder that, man, there's this whole life out there. There's this whole world out there in which it's there to be discovered, it's there to be understood, or at least for us to try and understand it and try and understand what it means to us. And I'm not really doing that. And I thought mm. I really need to go and figure out what for me feels purpose-driven, what gives me a sense of fulfillment. And I think the place to start is just to go in search of something you're passionate about, to go on a journey. It may not be the right journey, but at least you're moving in a direction in which you'll learn more about yourself. And so for me, it was the book that really started everything. Yeah, there's a reason that book's been around for so long because it, it does such a good job at communicating those messages within it. And I think part of that comes from the story that it tells. It really does go to show the power of that story and, and the lessons that that can hold within it because that's, I'm sure you're not the only person that has found a significant amount of meaning from that book. For um, sure probably not the first person that's read it and walked in and quit their job the next day either. But I, I think that that's you know, a perfect example of the, the question that you, you're asking there is, I mean, it's certainly a lot deeper than watching a, a documentary on different types of microphones, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that answer because I, I also remember reading that book and just thinking it just elevated that message in a way that, I hadn't had explained to me before and it is very easy to read like if, if anyone is listening and hasn't read it like the people that have read it will, mm. will understand but if you haven't read it you can pick up a copy almost anywhere yeah, um, it's not a big book either no it, it's a very easy read and I, I'm always fascinated to see how like sort of what people take away from it I will say the one thing that I'll add to this conversation before we cross to our next question is you know maybe some of you are thinking oh, I'm not so convinced about the meaning of art and, you know, maybe I'm not willing to go and pick up a book or pay for a book and go on, you know, the journey of reading 200 odd pages to, to figure out whether it's a meaningful pursuit or not. And maybe to someone who is underestimating the power of art and its meaning, one thing I'd encourage you to watch is there's a, a TEDx interview with Ethan Hawke, the actor. And this interview's on creativity and on art. And it's only about a five or 10 minute interview but he speaks about the importance of art. And he, there's a quote in there in which he says, art is sustenance. And most people don't realize until they're going through particularly a challenging time in their life in which they've lost someone they love or they've, they've gone through heartbreak or they've been through a, a particular piece of adversity. They don't really realize the impact that art has until they experience it in that frame of mind. And then the song that they listen to or the film they watch or the book they read hits home and it just it grabs your heart and just fucking squeezes the shit out of it and you go oh that's got more meaning than it ever did 
Yeah. And it talks about the importance of art and creativity. And that's an interview that in five or 10 minutes has had a profound impact on me. I've watched it a bunch of times. And it makes me think about the role that creativity has to play in all of our lives and how art isn't just something to be consumed, but rather something we should all think about creating in some way. Mm. It's, it's really a postcard of, of time and space, right? It, it, For sure. it really, no matter sort of what it is, if it is actual artwork on a wall or if it's a, a song or if it's you know an article, it, it really is just an encapsulation of what that individual is experiencing in that moment in time, which is why they do it does link with memory so well for sure it's um, storytelling it is it is so the next question i've got for you uh what is the most meaningful interaction that you've had with a complete stranger oh there's so many there's so many well the podcast probably helps you a fair bit it, it does <laughs> do you classify the, those but as strangers i won't I'll, I'll i'll steer away from the podcast for interest of the listeners and there's there's a gentleman who i I won't speak about because I've spoken about him a couple of times on podcasts. A lot of people hear me talk about Ernie, Ernie? Yeah. <laughs> and Ernie's had a huge impact on my life. He's a gentleman I met in hospital who had terminal cancer, but I won't speak about him in this moment. One I'm going to refer to is a gentleman who I actually can't remember his name. I'm pretty sure it was Mark. And some would say, well, is it that meaningful if you can't remember his name? But I, w- I would suggest that it is for this particular reason. So last year, I went on a trip to the US. In fact, oh, probably it's probably 11 months ago, because I believe it was mid-October that I went to the US, and I went on a solo trip. And I went to LA for a week, and then I went to New York. And so when I got into New York, one of the things that I really wanted to do more than anything is I'd been there six years prior, but the one thing that had really changed, well, a lot of things had changed in my life, but one of the big things was I was now a runner. And I got to New York and I thought, I really want to run around Central Park. You know, I really want to go and explore that place on foot. And so I took myself down. It was my first run. I was feeling particularly, um, let's say, jet lagged and just from a bunch of different time zones. And I got into New York and, you know, just left my, my hotel that morning and went down for a run. And I think I got lost at some point and a 5K run turned into a 12K run. And I found myself coming across this fella that was, that was running. And, I, and I'll say that he looked like maybe he was in his 50s and, you know, out for a jog. And we kind of, I pulled up next to him and said, how you going, mate? And he goes, oh, Ozzy, how you going? And we started chatting. And, and this guy, I started talking to him and I seen he had a New York Marathon singlet on. And we were actually approaching, I think it was about a month away from New York Marathon. And I asked him if he was going to be running, in which he replied, oh, not this year, but I've run it 17 times, or something like 17 times. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. I was like, mm-hmm. I've just done my third marathon at the time. And I'm like, not many people ever do one. I think 1% of the population run a marathon in their life. To, to have run 17 and to still love running, you're doing something right. And so he said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm probably holding you back. I'm a little bit slower than you are. And I said, mate, I love a bit of sexy pace when I'm trotting. <laughs> I'm going to hang with you and let's have a chat if you don't mind. And so we spent the next couple of Ks running together and just chatting. And I kind of realized that this guy was actually in his mid-70s and he was still out running. And we started talking about our stories. And he was actually a school teacher at a school in New York City. And he taught, um, it was an all-boys school, a high school, in which he spoke about the, the kind of impact he was trying to have on, on these boys' lives. And I just remember getting to the end of our run in which I said, see you later. Actually, his name was Eric. 
That's it. It was Eric, not Mark. Mark. It was Eric. Close. Four-letter name. And we exchanged emails. And he was also a musician and sent me a couple of songs that he'd made. And, And I had this really incredible interaction with this guy. And I remember getting to the end of my run and thinking about that and thinking, man, that guy's got an incredible story, but he looks like just the rest of us. Just a human being out on his daily run, living his life, a life in which, you know, without asking him or engaging in conversation, I have no idea about. And I thought about how meaningful that was, that two strangers who are from complete opposite ends of the world could have a conversation that meant something to both of us that we could be compelled enough to then make an active effort to engage in post-conversation over another platform. And I just thought, far out, how many of those conversations are to be had, but we don't engage in them? Mm -hmm. And so for the rest of the trip, I was very conscious of that. And it led to me having some incredible conversations and, and actually having about a half an hour conversation every day with the doorman at the hotel who John and I become great mates and knew everything about each other's lives. But it's, you know, it's a big part of what we've been talking about lately and it's, depth of connection but just connection in itself and how meaningful conversation is most certainly a catalyst to that mm. how about yourself so I, I was trying to think of a couple as well and there's there's obviously a number of potential ones but th- there's one that kind of stuck out and the reason i'll choose this one is it it has a message within it that <clears throat> that kind of aligns with what we're talking about today and it's almost like a, a cultural message in a way so the conversation that i had or the interaction that i had was also in america um, so I was in Sacramento at the start of this year and I went to go and watch Sacramento Kings game. So my, my favorite team. And I was there with Sam, Sam and I had both bought tickets and Sam ended up getting uh, a media pass so we could go down and shoot the game. So we had a spare ticket <clears throat> and we were, we were in one of the vintage shops that afternoon and just was, was in there having a look. I wanted to get a shirt and the, there was a young guy who was working behind the counter and he's like super nice, just pretty welcoming. And he ended up having a chat to us for a bit once he figured out where we were from. Maybe it's something about the accent. Everyone always loves chatting to the Aussies. They but um, chatted to him for a while. And then I went out the back because I had like a second shop out the back. And I was thinking, I was like, well, if Sam's not going to use the ticket, I might offer it to this guy just as, as something like he might be able to come, he might not, but if I don't give it to someone, he's the only person I could potentially give it to right now who isn't a complete stranger. So I went back out and I was like, man, are you, what are you up to tonight? I've got a spare ticket for the game. Do you want to come along? And he was like, oh, I've got to work. Um, I probably won't be able to get out until half time. So maybe give it to someone else. I was like, man, have the ticket. Like I, I'm not going to find anyone else to give it to. If you find some time to come along, then, then so be it. And um, I went to the game he came sort of halfway through the third quarter, sat next to me, we were like right up the back. Uh, and I'd actually got chatting to a few people next to me who were really nice. And they're like, oh, we should go further down the, further down the front. I was like, no, I've got to stay up here. There's a guy who I was like, is a friend who I'm meeting that I don't really know, but he's, he's coming, coming up anyway. <laughs> so waited for him, watched the game together, had a great time. And then we went out the front and we're waiting for, well, I was waiting for Sam. And this guy, he had to get home because he lived like, sort of 30 minutes away and he'd already stayed after work so he'd come and watch the game and I was like man it's all right you can you can go home like um go do what you got to do and he's like man, I'm, I'm actually just really keen to come and have a chat so we just got chatting because we we ended up waiting for Sam for probably like an hour and a half because <laughs> Sam got caught up doing the media duty so he was shooting like the yeah. he went there just to shoot the game but got to know some of the guys that work for the team and he ended up shooting like the press conferences and stuff which he 
would not even do when he's working in Sydney because he's like, I'm not shooting press conferences, but enjoyed it so much. And the crew that he was working with took me an hour and a half. And I just chatted to this dude for like an hour and a half. And there was something about knowing that he he had actually come along. Like it'd be really easy for him to say no. Like he was, he was working, but he decided to come along. Like it's nice to go to a game. But there was something for me where I was like, I've gone to the effort of giving this guy a ticket. I'm going to get to know him. And it was the same thing, just taking the moment or a couple of moments to go a little bit deeper with some of the questions, to talk about some of the things. And he was really interested in Australian culture. And something I, I picked up after I was chatting to the other group of people that I was sitting with before he got there was that there's something really unique about American culture where it's really, really supportive for, from my experience anyway. Like everyone I spoke to was really interested in me, what I was doing. They were really like, they'd congratulate you on the work that you're doing. And it got me to think how different that is to our culture over here where there's you know, the, the obstacle of tall poppy syndrome mm. where it's not even, not only just yourself and your own ego that you need to overcome, but that's the same with other people. Like no one's ever going to big up you or say like, you're doing an awesome job. And, and it doesn't feel the same as what some of those conversations I did when I was over there. So I got, to, I got talking to him about sort of what that means and he was just fascinated by it. He was like, I can't even imagine, like if I do something, I'm really proud of it. It got me to look at the way I kind of conceived the notion of pride. Because something I've always had a really tough time doing is saying like, I'm proud of the things that I'm doing in life. Like I, I, I am deep within myself, but I've never been able to say it. Mm. But that conversation with him, which all just started from me giving him that ticket back in the vintage shop, really opened my eyes to the way in which we, we have the opportunity to give other people confidence. And so many times we choose not to just because it's the social norm. But taking a moment just to, to give someone that compliment or just that bit of confidence that they're doing a good job is something I really picked up from that conversation with this guy. His name was Sparsh, um, which is a really strange name, but one that's very memorable. It's no Eric sure. or Mark. <laughs> um, and that's a conversation and an interaction that I'll, I'll probably remember for a very long time because of not only the circumstances, like it actually took me a bit of confidence to give him the ticket in the first place. But just the conversation that we had and the way in which we connected over that short period of time was, was something that meant a lot to me. It's such a special thing, isn't it, when you can have that, that connection with someone who's a stranger and to know that you may never see them again. Mm. But for that point, for that hour and a half or that two hours that you spent together, you had a great time. You got to know each other as deeply as you can in two hours, but enough to have an impact in which you're talking about it you know, a year later. Mm. Definitely. And, and I think where that kind of, the reason I chose that story in particular was because of that cultural concept. Like mm. I'm sure the conversation that you had with Eric is one where you probably felt like he was quite welcoming, right? Oh, and he was so welcoming. And, and I think that is a cultural thing. I'm not going to say Australians are all snobs because there's some, <laughs> some, some amazing people, right? But I think it's just the way in which we look at complimenting people and the, not only that, but then how we look at complimenting ourselves within the context of our culture is something that I think can, it has room to change. Like it has a lot of room to change. Well, we've spoken about the power of that gent on TikTok and Instagram who wears the velvet purple coat. Yeah. And his whole job is to just remarkably compliment people in the most extravagant ways as they're walking into or out of an event and to see every time the absolute joy on that person's face when they receive that compliment because it's so unique and it's so different and mm. it's thoughtful and meaningful is just so cool to see and I, I yeah it's a challenge i think for all of us to think about our interactions with strangers 
don't have to be that strange. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, is it my turn? Yeah, it's your it turn. It is. It's my turn. Okay. Here's one that I want to ask you. I want to ask you, so after all you've overcome, like you've overcome so much, and we just touched on that a little bit there, like, you know, we talk about the shark attack, we talk about getting back on the board and, and even just being able to walk in the first place, everything you're doing from a keynote speaking perspective, you've created a documentary, just touched on some of the incredible trips you've had overseas to shoot some really special things. I would say that there's a lot of things you should be incredibly proud of in your life. But for all of the success that we have in one area, I guess all these things are career and physical things. There's other areas of your life too in which, you know, those traits don't always cross over. I wonder, after all you've achieved, is there an area of your life in which you still feel a little bit lost? I, I try to take a really pragmatic approach to a lot of the things in my life. Like I, I have a, a really clear a really clear vision of what I want to to portray and that that really is my purpose so using my story to help other people that's that's what I live for but underneath that I have some pillars that mean a lot to me and they consist of things like um, motivating people through actions and through words it consists of other things like being happy and learning and um, focusing on my relationships and I think by writing a lot of those things down I'm not hundred percent on top of everything but I'm at least trying to work towards what that might be and yeah. I think probably if there's one thing if there's one thing I will probably critique myself on that I would like to continue making improvements on it's, it's probably being present mm. I think it's really easy and and this is one of the the pitfalls of all of the the planning ahead that I do and having all of these goals and these pillars that I really look forward to is it does it does lead your gaze into the future and something I've been trying to learn a little bit more is how how can I bring that back as well so I'm able to be present in the moment because there's times where I can find myself really focused on you know it could be a specific thing at work that I'm trying to do or like a concept that I want to try and get off the ground and it might be something that is dominating my thoughts so much that when I'm at home, I might not be fully involved in the conversation with my wife. So mm. there's things like that which can start to be impacted by this larger picture. And the ability to be present in the situation is something that I would say is the one thing at the moment that I want to try to keep working on. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people can have issues with. And I think... A big Guilty reason, charged. but a big reason for that is because our attention is just being pulled in so many different directions. Um, whether it be from something else we've got going on in life, like it could be a challenge, or it could be something positive. On the other hand, or it could be you know some things that you've got going on in your personal life. It could be like social media and all these other distractions that we've got. We are getting pulled in so many different directions, and our attention is a very finite resource. So choosing what you focus your attention on can be incredibly important. So whilst I say it's something I still want to keep working on, something I've been trying to do to combat that is to pick my spots. Mm. So really dedicating specific times where I'll say, okay, this is when I'm going to focus on X. And by doing that, then when I am at home, I'm sitting around the dinner table, I can be focused on being in that moment there. And just knowing, like the ability to know that you're not going to be able to conquer every single thing at once is, is really important there. 
So let me reframe because I'm even thinking about my answer here mm. and it's probably very similar to yours. Let me reframe the question to maybe what seems to be a more, or maybe have a more fruitful answer. If there's one distraction you could remove from your life or from society, what would it be and why? I think it would be... I mean, the obvious one that I'm sure a lot of people would probably go towards would be like the thing in your pocket, right? <laughs> but I'm going to leave that alone for the moment because I, I, I want to talk about another part of these distracting powers, um, which would probably be perception. Um, and what I mean by perception is perception of success or failure. Mm. I think one thing that especially for me takes a lot of my attention when I'm thinking about those things off in the distance is what I need to do in order to succeed or how it's going to make me feel if I fail. And I, I talk all the time about letting go of those fear of that fear of failure because with, if you do hold on to that failure, it makes it really difficult to focus on what the next step forward is. But it's still always going to be something that's off in the distance because you have to reason with the final outcome. So I think that that is that distraction for, for me and I think for a lot of people that can take away from a lot of the other parts of our life which we can you know, lose a lot of focus on because we are so worried about those things that are happening in the future. So that would probably be one thing. And, and as far as working on those, I guess a big part of it for me has been, you know, if I look at how I'm managing that specifically, I would say the ability to reflect. And I, look, I'm going to go back to reflecting so often because it helps me a lot. Um, if I can reflect on what I've done in order to service those goals, it should take a little bit of the, you know, the anxiety out of the success or failure away from me because at least now I know if I have done the things that I need to do this week, like if I'm mm. doing a weekly reflection, if I've done the, the things that I need to do this week to try and take that step closer, then that's fine. That's all I can do. I can only do what my time and effort and energy will allow me to do. So I think that's probably how I would approach the answer to that question but it's a difficult one because it really does it i think the it has a very obvious answer which would be mm. like again all the distractions that we have computers phones all of that but sometimes even if you remove that you know if you completely took it out that's actually going to make things harder for you i think <laughs> in in the long run like how, how would you answer the question well i would maybe initially point to the obvious mm. because and it's funny what you just mentioned there about maybe that would make it harder because I think that's where um, the challenge lies. Because what I recognize is the obvious being for me, social media. Mm. I think about social media and the fact that it has granted me opportunity to do what I love for a living. Now, I question in a world in which social media didn't exist in the first place, would I be a podcaster? <laughs> I would argue probably not, but I know that I'd be storytelling. Yeah. Because this has been a deep passion for a long time. I would find different mediums to tell stories. And maybe, maybe my interest in being a storyteller would exist in a space in which I just go and have conversations with people and share deeply connected stories like we would over a coffee. You know, and, and you would go, and I really enjoy sharing and hearing stories with Brad. You'd be that bloke hanging down at the, the oversized chessboard in the park. For sure, <laughs> yeah. for sure, looking for an opportunity to do that. Yeah. But I question social media all the time because in a world in which it's granted us a lot of opportunities to do these, what you'd call quite peculiar things for a living, it seems to present so many challenges, I think, for society. There's a few that, that I think about. 
I think about the fact that you made mention to at the start of this show that you and I have been catching up every week and you were saying that you take a lot of joy in that catch up because we'll sit down over a coffee and I really enjoy it too. And the first 30 to 60 minutes of us seeing each other before any work is always just catching up on what's happened over the last week. And there always seems to be a number of things that we can chat about and, mm. and laugh about or, or strategize over or you know have a deep conversation around. And I would, I would maybe think that part of the reason that we can do that every week is because you and I don't converse too much over social media or the phone during the week. Like it's really on those Tuesdays that there's usually a Monday call just to make sure or that Tuesday morning call mm. where usually me going how, how late are you oh, I've, I've <laughs> funny you got stuck at the, at the barbers or something like that and i'm running half an hour behind in which you so always gracefully say oh it just gives me time to do some other stuff yeah um but i think that part of the reason our in-person connection is so strong because we leave the catch-up to the catch-up mm. and i was talking about this with um podcast guest the other day jack archdale jarchi and he was saying that he hates just messaging mates all the time over social because when he sees you, he really wants to see you and connect with you. Mm. And I was thinking about that quite a bit. I think that we've fooled ourselves to think that we are connected with the people in our lives because we follow them online and we see what they're up to. It's actually something I wrote in my journal yesterday, which I've got here. It's got my questions on it, where I wrote, real conversations are greater than DMs. Yeah. Real connections are greater than followers. Real moments are greater than posts online and real life is greater than online. And, you know, we often think that I think we've put online life on a pedestal because we look to influencers and think, oh, it's incredible. They've got 100,000 people who follow them. Because you can measure it. Yeah. And, you know, we can measure the success of the life that Mm. they're somewhat living and how interested people are in their lives. But we've lost interest in our own lives, in the truth of connection. And so I think in a world in which social media didn't exist, maybe we wouldn't have some of the opportunities we have or the mediums we have to connect. But I, I would seem to think that maybe the world would be a more authentic and connected place. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that we can think about that and think deeply about it and, and ask each other questions around, oh, what sort of impact would it have? But social media is here to stay. It's, yeah, it's only going to become more involved in our life. More prevalent. Yeah. And so I've been thinking a lot about So how do I do a better job of not making it a distraction, but rather a tool? Mm. And so the thing I've been thinking deeply about is um, a post that I've seen recently on social media um, from a, (laughs) the the contract, the walking contradiction (laughs) that I am, um, seen a post from a lady named Fern Cotton and Fern Cotton's an incredible podcast host. She she has a show called um, Happy Place. She's from the UK. She's a POM. And I've heard her on a bunch of shows and, and I believe she's done a lot of stuff on TV and quite a successful lady. And she was saying that her challenge, um, and, and might I add that Fern is, um, I would say like in her late thirties, early forties, just based off the success she's had, you know, she's been on TV for a long time. Um, but she spoke about her challenge for herself over the summer in Europe was to put her phone down, actually leave it at home in the drawer, turn it off to head out for the day and do whatever the tasks were for the day with a film camera in hand so she could take photos and get them developed at a later date, not to stew on the photo or to look at it for 30 minutes and question, you know, whether the photo is good enough to justify the beautiful dinner that you're out experiencing. Mm. Because how often do we do that? How often do we sit around the dinner table 
and the food that was there to be enjoyed and the conversation that was there to be had is just left begging because we've spent so much time trying to capture the moment Mm. so that people think it's special when we post it on social media. And, you know, we think about like how restaurants now are actually designing their spaces so that it's Instagrammable. Yeah, the wall. Yeah, for sure. And, And so I'm like, so much of our life has been designed around what that moment looks like online as opposed to what the experience feels like. So I, I, I was just thinking about the the greatest way of, like as you were explaining things, I was like, oh, it's the analog lifestyle. Like that's that's yeah. what she, she's living in. And I suppose the, the metaphor you draw there, like you can say analog and digital watches, right? There is definitely a place for digital watches. I've got one on now. Very, very handy. Um, that's the modern world. But there's something so beautiful still about a beautiful old analog watch. And I think that is, it's really spoken beautifully by that what you just mentioned there like the ability to actually take the digital watch off put the analog watch on and live in that moment for even if it's only for a day like it just would would help you appreciate those connections that you can make in that moment and i guess what i would kind of advocate for in that situation if possible like you can you can definitely you and i might not know each other if it wasn't for the digital stuff like if for it wasn't sure. for social media but the value comes in the stuff that happens offline so you can come across people and use it as a search engine, I guess. But I'd encourage people to make the deeper connections offline because that's where it's going to hold more meaning and value. So the question that I've found that I'm going to start asking myself is, am I doing this for social media? If so, what would I be doing if social media didn't exist? Mm. And, and I'm thinking about that in terms of my day-to-day experiences. So it's funny. So... Um, one of my best mates, a friend of yours as well, Fooney, recently um, was saying, I think it was on Sunday, we caught up. Um, me, so Foons and Joey went down to um, Yachty's for a coffee and the boys indulged in some donuts. Soph and I, being the, the strict fitness freaks that we are, um, didn't because we're waiting to <laughs> have an absolute... <laughs> we're waiting to absolutely have a blowout this weekend after the marrow. <laughs> um, but we're sitting around the table and, and Foons was laughing about the fact that he thinks maybe he's the only man in modern history who's run a marathon and didn't post it online. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, you're probably not far off. And I was, I was thinking about man, what things am I doing in my life now that without social media I'd still do? And that's a question of validation, Mm. right? And so, you know, asking yourself, am I being validated or are my experiences being validated by the fact that I get to post them and share them? Or is this something that's actually meaningful to me? Could you point to something in your life that you are now doing for social media that you could could just cut out and not have to post it on social media and you your quality of life and everything around it would be no worse off because of it something that you're saying that i wouldn't do anymore or just yes that you would say like i mean you can't say you can't say like taking a photo of your food because you're going to be still need to yeah yeah um probably to be honest the the marathon itself Mm -hmm. now now let me explain this in a little bit more depth because it's deeper than just one thing but when I started running marathons, particularly the first three, had a lot of meaning. Like it had a lot of meaning because it was about me achieving something that felt monumental for me. It reminded me that I'm bigger than cystic fibrosis, that I had some control over what I do about it. And so for me, it was a really inspirational um, journey to go on, to run my first one and then 
you know, my second was something I was really excited for. My third was the first time that I, I was on track after a new drug in which I was excited to go and run a PB, which I did. And coming up to December last year, there was almost this feeling in which we're coming up to the two year anniversary of the first marathon. And I felt this obligation to do something that would be special on social media to commemorate it. Mm. Now, I definitely wanted to run a, an ultra at some point in my life, but the idea that it was going to be on the anniversary and it was something that we could post about and share for people with CF was too much of the motivation that the run didn't really go the way that it should have. And so I think about the marathon that we're heading into run now. Well, for me, this is going to be Soph's first marathon. So the whole purpose behind it was, well, I'm going to do this for Soph. But I found myself throughout a point of this year having to post or like I've done that Ned 10 challenge at the start of the year where I ran 48 10Ks in a row. And I found myself at the end of it like exhausted by posting. Mm. I was like, man, I don't need to post a run. I, I want to run because I love running because it gives me something. If I don't post the run, I still get the incredible feeling from the run. But maybe people don't think that, oh, what a badass. <laughs> and I'm like, but that's not what I'm going for. Yeah. So I think after this marathon, it will be actually like chipping back and just running and enjoying training for a bit and rediscovering what's next. Mm. Is it a run in which mm -hmm. I want to do not to post online? And maybe the challenge is to do it and not post it, to just experience yeah. it. You know, but even that feels weird because then I'm like, oh, but it's a great memory I want to share. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I think it's being able to understand your motivation behind things. And, and I just think I, I want to get to a point in which the life, the actual life that I'm living, the real life experiences are just super meaningful. Mm. It doesn't always have to exist online. And maybe it's something you just post at a later date as a memory. I like that. And I, I didn't notice it until Noemi pointed it out that you weren't posting your runs on Strava. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah. But did your life change measurably because you stopped posting <laughs> your runs on Strava? No, and the funny <laughs> thing is people keep following me on Strava and I'm like, <laughs> I'm not posting anything. How are you guys finding me? Yeah. But what I found is that I actually stopped and, and haven't done for six months now, worn a watch for yeah. a run. I wear my whoop just to track. I'm, I'm enjoying tracking like a bit of sleep. And I even think that maybe there's a period in which I'll, I'll not wear this for a bit and think about how I feel in relation to not having data. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. Um, but I, I often think about, you know, I stopped wearing, a, and I think a watch has got a lot of benefits in being able to track performance you know, to track how you feel and then to look at pace and go, okay, well, I feel terrible <laughs> and my pace bad. reflected that. Or <laughs> I feel terrible, but my pace was actually pretty good. And, yeah. and it's not always an indicator of, you know, how you run. But I think that for me, I just needed to take my watch off because for a long time I felt like I was trying to perform for others and not for myself. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good bit of self-awareness really. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of people would benefit from going through that, like almost a mini audit of asking if there's anything you could maybe leave out as far as like the well, assess why you're doing things in the first place and see if there's anything you could leave out that would maybe give you a bit more time for yourself mm. um, or to connect with the things you want to do um okay my next question uh is all centered around the notion of why um so why can be such a jarring question based on our perception of a child asking why repeatedly What's an example when this has actually led to a far deeper understanding for you as you've gotten older, but also alternatively, like what is the power of silence and understanding for you as well? 
So when do you know when to ask and when do you know when to stand back? Yeah, that's a, it's a deep question. And I really want to think about the answer that I'm giving you here. Well, I guess... Go so on. I, I know you, you were speaking about uh, a younger experience of yours to me the other week where <laughs> you, you got known on a family holiday for going up to every single person saying, question for you. Yeah. So and I wasn't something... even that young. I was like, yeah. six, I was like 18, <laughs> just the most curious fella. So that, that's... It's obviously within your nature to ask the question, mm. why? And I guess the purpose of asking this to you is to give everyone a bit of an understanding of why being curious is important. Curiosity is so important. And I want to lean on an, on an example that I think would be, would be really moving. And it's, it's going to bring up a guy who I was not going to mention before, but we'll mention now, Ernie. I think that in my life when I... Like the reason I have a podcast is because of this curiosity and love for storytelling. And I found that throughout the course of my life, I was very interested in people's stories. And I can't point to why, you know, like I can't actually pinpoint why I took a keen interest in story really early. Because if you ask my family, and even I can recall moments when I was four or so years old, and we'd be at a family picnic down at the beach, and I would look over at a, at a group of young guys who were kicking a footy, might have been in their teens or, or adults, and I would say to mum and dad, hey, can I go play with them? And they'd say, yeah, as long as we can see ya. And I'd go play and, and ask them questions and want to be involved. I always had this fascination for human beings, their stories, where they come from, why they are the way they are. And I think at the core, when I, when I go, why is that? I think we all have that in some regard, like it's part of being human, is in reflecting on your own human condition. And maybe the, maybe the answer is because I, I knew I was different from the start, you know, living with cystic fibrosis and having different challenges. It made me question how other people are different, like what are the little idiosyncrasies of, of their life and, and their story that I'm not aware of, but maybe only their really close people are, that, you know, what makes us who we are? And so, you know, particularly a moment that that stood out to me was when I met Ernie in 2019. So I was in hospital, in Wollongong Hospital, with a, quite a scary bleed and an infection in my lungs. And, and I found myself, you know, thankfully in a private room in Wollongong Public Hospital, um, usually because people with cystic fibrosis have not only a propensity for more lung infections, but are at a really high risk when we're unwell of catching other things. They call it cross infection. And so um, I was walking one day through the hall with my mum just down to get a cup of tea at the, the hospital kitchen and we bumped into an older gentleman and my mum knew him. My mum had sold Ernie a couple of cars, okay. and um, which is no surprise because my mum sold a car to everyone in Wollongong. <laughs> and as we're standing there in the hallway, um, I noticed that Ernie pointed to the room just beside mine and that was the room that he was in. And I remember peering into the room and just my curiosity, like I'm looking in to see who's in there. There's three other old gentlemen in that room too. It was a shared room. And just looking back to Ernie and, and hearing him talk about the fact that he had terminal cancer. And I could just tell that, oh man, like this guy needs a mate. And, and I really feel for the fact that like the room just had an average vibe in it, which mm. to be fair is, is a product of four really sick people in yeah. hospital or sharing a room. And I just said to Ernie, mate, if you ever feel like you need to get out of your room, come knock on my door and we can have a chat. And that afternoon at two o'clock, 
tea and biscuit cart come around as it does every day in hospital and I for sure grabbed my fair share of bickies and a cup of tea and it went to Ernie's room and within a matter of a minute you know I hear a knock on the door so I invited Ernie in for a chat and he sat down on, on the big seat beside my bed and we just started having a conversation which I asked him about his life and I found out some really interesting things about Ernie. So Ernie was a, a prison guard and worked at some of the maximum security prisons in Australia. He spoke about, you know, guarding people like Ivan Milat and those experiences and some of the stories he had to tell were fascinating. But just as I started to dive deeper, like I wanted to get deeper than work, like talk to me about why you're here. Talk to me about what it feels like to be in a position in which you cede control to a terminal illness. And we spoke about that and I learned so much from this fella. I learned so much and, and at the end of that experience, it made me really question and have curiosity for my own life and my own experience and what really meant something to me. And I remember standing at Ernie's funeral a couple months after, it would have been six months after, and thinking about the experience of getting to know him in hospital and how important curiosity was. And I was standing at the funeral of a gentleman who... 12 months ago, 18 months ago, just bought a car with my mum. And now he'd had like a huge impact on my life. And it's a credit to curiosity. And I think that, you know, standing still and, and really asking someone why and what the certain moments of their life have meant to them and then asking yourself what that could mean to you is just an incredibly important thing. And so I hope I haven't waffled too much there, but I've spoken with some sense. But no, you have. Was this the same hospital journey that you were gifted the alchemist as well? It was. <clears throat> it was. I, I think there's something if you zoom out and whilst this was your almost coming of age when it comes to asking why and wanting to be curious and wanting to know more, it's almost like the universe asking you the same question. Like you, you get put in this situation, which is terrible, gets you to reflect on everything you're doing at the moment. It's asking you why. You get, you get given this book, which you don't read at the time, but again, maybe it's the universe saying, you know, why are you doing the things that you're doing? You meet this man, Ernie, same question. Why have you met him? What can you find out of him? And then you later attend his funeral. Like the, these events, and that's the way that I would answer it is, I think one of the most important ways that I have asked that question why repeatedly have all been questions to myself. Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Like, why is my experience teaching me this? Mm. And I think sometimes where those questions can come from can really influence the way in which we perceive them and where we go after it. So I think as valuable as it was for you asking all of those questions that time and that point in your life, I think when you do zoom out and you realize all these other factors that are, that are part of it, and that's obviously a very significant point in your life that you reflect on with a lot of I guess a lot to take away from it for yourself that the question of why and that curiosity not just from you but almost from the universe as well has gifted you a large perspective incredibly so and you know it's it's something that I think we don't recognize often until we're at a point of rock bottom where we really start to think about what life means to us and and why we are the way we are. And and I would say that for me, thankfully, a lot of my pivotal moments in life in which I've learned a lot about myself have come from a position in which I was at rock bottom and had to go on a real journey. 
And I think they're, they're the times that we tend to get really reflective, introspective, very curious. But I hate to think that we all have to experience absolute yeah. rock bottoms mm. and these catastrophic moments to actually start to think about how curiosity and, and questioning can have an impact on our lives. And it, it leads me to a quote that is absolutely overused on this podcast, but I'll do it again, that we speak about a lot. Um, guest of the show, Rich Davini, who once said to me, Brad, the quality of our lives is directly proportionate to the quality of questions we ask ourselves. It's just curiosity. Mm. comes back to curiosity of the self and also the curiosity to ask questions of others. So then the, the moments of silence, where have you, where have you learnt or where have you found answers in the moment of silence? Mm. Man, a few things, a few things. I would say that there were, up until really the last couple of years, very few moments of silence in my life. Very few, because I often found myself with a desire to be distracted. So I think that sometimes when we feel as though we're lost, silence can feel de deafening, you know. But one of the big ones is I'll go back to that trip to America last year in which I went solo. And I found myself, you know, I went over and, and when the trip was, you know, in its initial planning stage, I was supposed to go with a mate, a mate who then got a business opportunity who couldn't come and I decided I'm going to commit to the trip by myself anyways. And I found myself in LA for a week by myself. And I'd been on a solo trip earlier that year to Port Douglas, which was um, really fruitful. And I, I spent a lot of time off social media, journaled a lot, read a lot, spent a lot of time in intro, introspection and reflection. And, and it was a really good trip for me. But particularly in LA, I felt very detached. I think Port Douglas offered this um, dive into nature, which I was snorkeling off the barrier reef, you know, going on a journey through the Daintree rainforest. And I often found myself in group settings in which I was experiencing these things. But what happened in, in LA, I was almost in this concrete jungle in which um, I actually felt very lonely. And I remember going to a cafe every morning. Um, it was a Aussie owned cafe, Great you know, light. the end. No, it was Blue Bottle, which I think was, oh, or maybe it was inspired by Australian cafes, okay. one of the two. Not completely important to the story, um, <laughs> but I'd have a coffee, read a bit of a book every morning and journal. And I remember sitting there at this moment and I'd actually been um, sort of tossing up the idea of moving overseas um, this year, at the start of 2023. And, you know, it was going to be a particularly um, new phase of my life. So a lot of people may, may know this, may not, but I'd been living with my dad and his partner who had committed to buying a property up in Queensland and we're going to be moving. And so I was going to be moving anyways. And so I questioned, well, you know, one of the, the really consistent and, you know, integral people in my life, my dad and his partner were going to be moving away. Maybe it's a time for me to go and just have a fresh start somewhere and to test a new area and experience a new part of life. And I was thinking about London. Why London? Well, because, you know, I think sometimes it's better to be a little fish in a big pond. In London, there's a, a bunch of opportunity and in which you know our kind of work seems to thrive and grow and so I was thinking a lot about that move and so as I sat down I really thought about man I'm about to commit to a move overseas to the other side of the world and I'm sitting here in LA and I feel particularly alone right now and not alone in the sense that I have this strength in solitude but rather I feel really lonely oh and that's a little bit weird because 
I've got incredible friends who I see quite consistently. I've got a really supportive family. Why do I feel so lonely? And started to think about what you said before, the pillars of my life. And I wrote down there's four pillars of my life that are really important. The first is my people. And you know, my people are such an important part, my connections. The second is my work. The third is my health. And the fourth, what's this fourth pillar? And it was environment. And so I started to think about my environment. And I think in this place and you know, getting to your question, I had this environment I existed in in LA for that week where the silence was sometimes death, deafening. Mm. And I found myself even in, in New York in the same position where I was spending a lot of time by myself in solitude without a whole bunch of data on my phone to be listening to podcasts <laughs> or listening to music in which I just every day lived in my head. And what I learned in that space of time was what's really important to me. And, you know, I decided that I was actually going to stay put for a little while longer, that I was going to think about what type of environment I wanted to cultivate and why I was feeling lonely when I was in a new environment. And I think at the time what I come to as an answer was there were a lot of insecurities I had about, you know, who I was and the way I was showing up in the world. And those insecurities didn't exist when I lived on stage as a speaker or when I got behind the mic as a podcast host. But a lot of them related to romantic relationships and how I often, as someone with cystic fibrosis, didn't recognize the barrier that I see in that to be in finding a long-term partner. And, you know, I think as some family starts to move away, I started to think about the family that I want to create in the future and how important that actually is to me. And for a long time, I didn't think... I'd be able to have a family of my own. I just didn't think I'd find a partner who'd bet on a future with me. <clears throat> and, you know, I really journaled through that over the course of that two weeks. And funnily enough, I come home and a week later I met Soph. <laughs> and so that silence and that time for reflection was huge for me. It's very alchemisty, isn't it? It is. It's very alchemisty to a point in which I've suggested to people who feel stuck maybe spend some more time by yourself, mm. you know, and reflect. Don't just spend that time by yourself on social media, watching movies, like listening to things. Listen to your, yourself, ask yourself some questions, reflect. Because that silence for me was golden. Mm. Like I learned so much about myself. I wonder how much of, of that comes through the notion that <clears throat> sometimes when you're, you're in a situation like that, if you were to talk to someone they have the natural inclination to offer you suggestions or try to try and fix it. You should do this. You should try that. Yeah. You should go here. Um, whereas I think talking to people can give us, can teach us a lot about the world around us, but sometimes that silence, as you said, can teach us a lot about ourselves. Well, I think that sometimes mm. we tend to think we know what the problem is in our life, mm. yeah. but we're actually off the money. It's, it's something else disguised mm. as loneliness or disguised as, um, disguised as a challenge or a piece of adversity, but there's a, deep, there's a deeper meaning to it. There's a deeper um, beginning of that feeling. And so, you know, the silence and the, the alone time allows you to work through that. And I, I now think of um, the ability to be alone or to be in solitude as a strength. And I think we often think of it as a weakness or something to shy away from. And so for me now, a lot of my alone time comes from a solo run or something like that where I'll really disconnect and just go out and I tend to think a lot on a run. Um, sometimes I don't think at all, but that feels healthy too. <laughs> so, you know, what about for yourself? 
Well, I kind of covered as far as the the notion of asking why. Like that, some of the best, the the most significant moments in my life have been when I've asked myself the question, and that has got me to learn a lot about who I am and what I want to do in my own life. Um, and I, I don't think I would have gotten there unless I had those moments of introspection. Um, so I do that a lot. I ask myself why. There's actually a pretty tangible um, example of the power of silence and understanding um, that I experienced recently with Naomi. Um, I got home from speaking at something, it was like two weeks ago, and Naomi was telling me about something that had happened during her day and she was talking about it and I was just sitting there listening. And I was listening and she was talking and she talked for a little while and I didn't say anything and she was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. And she kept talking and she's like, are you sure? You're right, like you're being really quiet. And I said to her, I'm just trying to not focus on giving you advice or fixing i just want to listen and she goes oh (laughs) (laughs) and i was like there's it just showed to me the value in in actually taking a moment to listen to someone else Mm. and you don't have to have answers it's really that's why i brought it up before it's really really difficult as someone who's listening to someone else to not provide suggestions or answers like sometimes just listening can be the most powerful thing that you can do you don't have to say anything and that, that gave me a lot of understanding, not only about her own experience and what she was going through, and I think that brings us closer together as a partner, but it gave me a lot of perspective on what it means to listen and be supportive. And it's something we hear it pretty often, like, and we say it in the, in the, a, uh, in the presentation, a... right? We've got two ears and one mouth, we need to listen more than we speak, but it's a lot harder to do than it is to say. Bloody oath, bloody oath. I wanna ask you, a question here, final question. Have you done your four? Yep, I combined I'm my last two horrible and make four. At, yeah. um, I'm horrible at um, <laughs> you know, recounting how many questions we've asked. <laughs> I guess because I don't do a lot of Q&A style pods. True. But um, my last question, the question I want to ask you is, is something that was inspired from an audio book I listened to. So a gentleman by the name of Ross Edgeley is an adventure athlete. And Ross under, underwent a really particularly grueling challenge in which he swam around the UK. It was titled The Great British Swim, and he wrote a book based off that challenge and that experience, which he conquered. And, and when you talk about the stats behind it, I don't have the stats. It was monumental. Like the amount of time he spent in the water every day was something like 12 hours, which is huge. Um, like his tongue was peeling off yeah. and shit. Like it's crazy. Um, Talk about shark attacks. Yeah. Surprisingly, he wasn't one of the 11, one in 11.5 million. But he spoke about in his book, Art of Resilience, this um, memory from the past, this experience he had where he walked with these Japanese, Japanese Buddhist monks on what they would call an, an okugaki. And the okugaki is a spiritual pilgrimage in which you, you go and learn about yourself as a human being. Now, I have not done deep research on the okugaki and its meaning, but it has led to then a bunch of, I believe, Japanese men doing what they call um, the Japanese marathon men, in which they do something like a thousand days of a thousand marathons in a row. It's crazy, which they basically walk these things. It's like a great pilgrimage. And it's all about like connection to spirituality, connection to yourself. And one of the things that Ross framed as a question in the book, which I'm going to completely steal and use on here, but have credited him. I mean, credited him enough, hopefully. I'm pretty sure it wasn't it Kim was Kardashian listening. that wrote this book in the summer <laughs> of the UK. Um, it would probably mean as much if it was. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the things he asked in the book is, what is your okagaki? So what is your great adventure that would allow you to create a deeper connection with, with the self? Oh, it's... I think I could approach it from a number of different ways. There's, there is an innate desire for human beings to manifest this search for self within physical feats like that. And I think there's a lot of value in it as well because not only it, it ceases to become a physical test at some point and it becomes a pure mental test. Mm. And I think that is probably the most accessible way that we can, we can actually test ourselves. But I, and look, that's something I actively try and do. That's why I do, you know, the Molokai. It's why I do the marathons and ultras and stuff like that. Um, and despite how much you don't want me, want me to keep running, I'm afraid I'm going to have to <laughs> continue yeah. to run. Context um, to that for people. I've said to Brett, oh, I'm supposed to be the running guy when we step on stage and you're the surfer. <laughs> Steer clear of these big runs because you're yeah. making me look bad and you're doing them faster than me. So, you know, <laughs> I'm right. really starting to question you, my, my piece be, in this puzzle. Yeah, you're going to be upset over the next 12 months probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until I start pulling into ginormous barrels and yes, you start exactly. to you start yeah. to think, fuck, I'm gonna get back on the ball. <laughs> I I to to go to the 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 question, like what's your okagaki? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. I I think there's so much value in, in testing ourselves physically, but I also think there's a lot of value in for for me personally, I know I can do that stuff and it's very accessible for me. Where I think I would find more value is putting myself in positions that I wouldn't usually find myself in. I actually was speaking to a group last week and I almost experimentally put out the notion of the fact that, like I opened the presentation saying I shouldn't be here and not the fact that I shouldn't be in the room. Like I was in the right <laughs> place, but I, I shouldn't I shouldn't be here. You're at someone's wedding. Yeah, exactly. I shouldn't be here. Yeah. I shouldn't be standing on stage. And that's something due to the numbers that we've, we've documented in this podcast. But I, I circled back to that at the end. I said, I shouldn't be here, but I'm glad that I am. Because sometimes the places we don't think we are going to find ourselves in can be the places we find so much meaning and value in life. And I think the ability to put yourself in those situations can hold a lot of value. So when I think about what that means to me and something that a few people I know have talked about in the past. So things that I traditionally would shy away from very quickly. And there's one example of one where I, I probably do want to look into doing something like it. And it would be my version of this okagaki is putting myself in a position where I'm very open and vulnerable in the way that I'm being an overt character. And I've, I've heard a lot of people say there's a lot of value in doing improv classes. Mm. And it's something I've, if you say it to me, I would just write it straight off. I'd say, I can't do that. It's not, not something that I could physically stand, like stand in front of a group of people and be someone that I'm not. But I think there is a lot of value to putting yourself in a position like that. There's no harm that's going to happen if I go and do an improv class. Like, it's, it's not going to lead to my legs falling off or anything like that, unless it's the bit that you're doing. Um, but I, I think those situations for me would be what holds the most value because I know the physical stuff is is well within reach and I'm going to continue to do that and I'll probably keep finding out a lot about myself through doing that but I, I think it is also good to find different contexts mm. where you're going to push yourself in a similar way but maybe not using the same methods does that count as an okugaki it does I think it's beautifully said and 
And the question was, what is your okugaki? And so I think it has to have spiritual meaning in connection to self for you. You know, it's funny, you just mentioned something there that actually felt very similar to something I wrote the other day in my notes, just as a bit of a journal piece. So I'm going to share it with you and I hope that it hits the mark like I think it will go. This is your improv. Oh, yeah, it'd be so bad if it just didn't make any sense at all. But I was just reflecting on like life and like the journey of life and, and thinking particularly about something for me that's something I really want to dive back into and spend a lot of time in, which is the book that I was writing. And I just kind of wrote, it's a strange old thing, this experience we call life. Without answers to its meaning, to why we're here, one can be left clutching at straws for reasons to get up when life knocks us down. One can find suffering at the hands of the unfair cards they were dealt, only to look across the table to see someone smiling at their own fortune. Whilst I can't tell you why we're here on this earth, nor do I feel in any way encouraged to explore the answers to those existential questions, I do feel, though, compelled to let you in on a little truth you may have forgotten about. You are here, and one day you'll die and cease to exist ever again. It's why I consider myself to be blessed with bleeding lungs. Cystic fibrosis is most certainly not fair, but it's part of the reality in which I exist in this world, and I can't change that, nor would I want to. It's a part of who I am, yet it doesn't define me. What defines me is a life I've led up until this point, one of adventure, one of challenge, and at times failure, but ultimately one of triumph, because I'm still standing. For even in death, little of us lives on. It's in, people, it's in the people we touch, the children we bring into the world, and the legacy we leave. And I was thinking a lot about just that there and, and what my life is going to mean at the end of it. And in some ways, our life is a great okugaki. Mm. But I think about what's something that I really want to do that I think will leave lasting impact, not just for me and, and my really close people, but in a way where people can learn from my life. And one of the things I really want to do is, is related to that book. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time on the book through COVID and it almost become a project which when I reflect on, you know, and, and the lessons that you learned from that Daft Punk um, documentary, it become an experience I felt like I had to rush out. And it felt like the idea of like, okay, well, I've got this period of time, I should just get the book finished. But then I got to this point in time in which I thought, there's so many things that I'm yet to experience mm. that feel necessary <laughs> for this book. Now, I've had a bunch of those experiences over the last two years that are going to be valuable. I think there's still a few more to be had. And maybe it's not just this book, but another book in the future. But I really want to dedicate myself to a piece of art. It may not be a book, it may be a film, it may be something else in which leaves some sort of legacy and has some sort of impact and tells my story in a really beautiful way. And the way I've thought about doing that is is maybe spending, Soph and I have always spoken about over the course of the last couple of months, like how how incredible it would be to go and live somewhere else for a little period of time and kind of disconnect from everything we know and and live life and cultivate new life in that space. And so I've thought about my okugaki being an adventure in which I step into the unknown with the person that I love the most and use that as an opportunity to to write about my experiences and, and to maybe connect on a few more meaningful ones that I want to share with people. And, and maybe that's not too specific. Like I haven't thought too specifically about 
that question and, you know, I can't give you a, a plan or a formula as to what that's to look like. But, but similar to you, I've thought deeply about physical challenges, but I think for me it's, it's adventure, which is the thing, maybe a little bit more of a missing piece of the puzzle there. I, I love that. And, and it's tied together a lot of the things that we've spoken about today, right? <laughs> it's tied together purpose. It's tied together death. It's tied together Daft Punk. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's, it's tied together a lot of the things that we've talked about. And I think that's, I think that is almost like a, a beautiful summary of kind of a lot of the questions that we've, we've talked about that that there is not necessarily connection between us that's connection to self Mm. and that's kind of one side of connection that is at the root of all of this like we can't hope really to to delve deeper in other people's lives if we can't first understand ourselves so to ask those questions inwards first is almost like the first step there's um i was lucky enough to be speaking at a series of events over the last month future of leadership which you know about and i was really taken aback by um darren hill who is an amazing presenter and his presentation he combined a lot of those things and he had he had another um japanese thing that he was talking about which is not what i want to talk about but it's actually what reminded me of it and it's to do with the physical challenges that we that we choose to do but he his whole the whole message of his his keynote was based around the fact that we can create these existential problems, whether it be pandemics or you know, all, all these sorts of things. Like human dread is inevitable. And mm. a big part of that is because death is inevitable. Like we're all going to encounter death, it's undefeated. And because that's the case, then what are we gonna do while we're here? And he goes, he writes this beautiful poem, which he does at the end and he has it back to music. And I haven't seen anyone present like this, but it's really beautiful. And one of the big messages there is that our time on this planet is short. So choose how you, how you choose to spend it, like choose wisely. And if he could offer any sort of piece of advice, it's to use that time in service of others mm. because that's the greatest gift that we can give is our time to someone else. And I think it was such a beautiful way of, of weighing that up. And when you talk about you know, these experiences and, and what we can choose to do with our life and to create that thing that we can pass on to other people, essentially what that is yeah it's so beautifully said and something that pops to the front of my mind is just recently i was listening to someone speak about um their greatest inspiration being leonardo da vinci dicaprio um yeah (laughs) i'll tell you what fuck he's good in again (laughs) he's also incredible but leonardo da vinci and for the reason being that (laughs) i can see that you're still stoked about that call um the thing that I find to be quite interesting is we exist in a world now in which all of these artistic endeavours are often celebrated in the moment or not far after them. You think about those, those great artists. They were often not revered when they were alive, but mm. rather once they'd passed, you know, and years and years later. And I think, isn't that a great service to purpose and great service to humanity in which they created things that long after they lived are now things that we look at with great inspiration and think, oh, isn't that incredible? Like that that was created and that's the meaning that that holds for me and that's so special. But we exist in a world now where it's hard to judge whether we're doing things because of that greater purpose or for the attention that can come from them. Yeah. And it comes back to those questions we said, you've got got to have self-knowledge to understand why you're doing it. 
to ask yourself maybe would I do this without getting the the recognition you know whilst I'm here and there's a quote that I've got tattooed on my leg from Gladiator one of the opening scenes of Gladiator where Russell Crowe or as he's known in in the movie Maximus Decimus Meridius uh, (laughs) you know stands there amongst his troops as they're about to go out into battle and he says um, what we do in life echoes in eternity Mm. and that for me is like that's our purpose piece. That's yeah. legacy. Who'd have thought you could find that from Gladiator and Big Russ? <laughs> oh, mate, Big Russ has got some bangers back in the day. Uh, I love that. But it, it does, like, to, to tie everything that we have spoken about together, like, it does go to show that these, these questions that we ask, the way that we choose to connect, whether it be to ourselves, to others, to our purpose, like, it, the, and as you said before, Rich Divini, the quality of the questions that we're asking is really at the root of all that. And that... Like these are just eight questions that we've asked today mm. and we've spoken for what, like two hours. Yeah. The, just those, those simple questions going one layer deeper can open up a conversation so much more than the elevator ride down. Like it's, that's, yeah. And, and that's, that's why we wanted to do this is to show what that can look like. It's funny, I was listening to, and listeners are thinking, fuck, here he goes again, this is going to go for another two hours. <laughs> but just a quick story, I was listening to Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman, an old interview from 2020 just before where Joe was on Lex's platform. And they were talking about the origins of Joe's podcast. And Joe said, I really just started because I just wanted to. And he said, I remember a mate of mine who, he said, I give a lot of shit to today for it who said, oh, what are you doing two-hour conversations for? Like, just edit it down to 45 minutes. No one wants to listen to you talk for two hours. I'm like, why would you do that? And he goes, because I want to do that. <laughs> like, I would just want to chat to that person for two hours and hear about their life. So that's what I'm going to do. People don't have to listen. But if they do, great. And, and I think at the core of connection is just understanding why we want to connect with those people. And I think today that, you know, whether people find value in this or not, hopefully they do. Mm. But at the core of it, just knowing that we found it really interesting to sit yeah. here and talk about this. And even if the mics weren't here, we probably would have had this conversation for two hours. Over coffee anyway. A hundred percent. And so that's where it's so valuable. Definitely. Definitely. No, it's, it's, it really does go to show like just that one step deeper. Honestly, it's, it, it really has opened my, it, I've learned a lot. Mm. Um, not only over the last couple of years and questioning what, what connection means to me, but as we've been working on this keynote and even just the questions for this podcast, just what going that one step deeper can do. So I, I'm a big fan. I'm a very big fan. So like we'll have more questions so we can do this again. <laughs> 100%. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, for everyone, if you made it this far, thank you so much. Um, we're huge fans of you too. And I guess, Brett, thank you so much for coming on. If there's anyone listening from an organizational standpoint or an event planning standpoint, the obvious, give us a call. Get get us there. Get us there to speak. Um, We've created something that is not only as we feel very valuable, but quite unique, must I say. It has quite a theatrical element to it, Mm. um, which is exciting to go and do that on stage for a bunch of people. We won't give too much of it away just yet. No, we won't. We won't. But thank you so much for tuning in. As always, connect with Bretto, the man himself. He's doing some great stuff and you know, keep connecting with the pod. Um, in, I guess we've spoken a lot about Japanese stuff um, over the course of this episode, so sayonara. Perfect. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. 
It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling. And as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week. Thank you.